a lot of my practice for the last few years has just been breaking down like consciously laboriously but also like playfully breaking down this idea that I am a single unitary entity like that that I am a unitary self working with and like other unitary entities um, I think of myself as sort of having nine brains sort of or at least nine brains almost infinite brains to go back to um, the idea of the octopi in a decentralized brain I, I think I think of my consciousness as being continually shifting continually shifted and 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 shifted by a conversation with these other entities that are also non-unitary, not flattened, not stable, um, refuse to sit still, refuse to become a product or an object. That was artist and poet Daniela Molnar. And this is part two of a four-part series curated by the research collective Erratics, a curatorial group that creates art that explores geologic phenomena and the effects of human impact on the environment. In this episode, Tyler Ray of Erratics hosts a conversation about mutations, kin, and hybrid bodies. It explores the ever-changing conditions of climate change, how our interdependence across species presents hybridized forms of collaboration, and how, as a result, we are challenged to expand the ways we understand change and resilience. Tyler is joined by sculptor and mixed-media artist Flavia Durso, artist and engineer Zhao Bao Li, and artist and poet, Daniela Molnar. Welcome to Chattermarks. A podcast of the Anchorage Museum. Dedicated to exploring Alaska's identity. Through the creative and critical thinking of ideas. Past, present, present, and and future. future. If we could go again around and just sort of start to talk about maybe what questions you're currently holding in your practice, um, what you're working on now or what you're most curious about, just to give a little more insight into what everyone's working on currently. Daniela, would you like to start? Sure, happy to. Um, The questions I've been exploring in my practice for um, the last several years, sort of the central question, does revolve around climate grief and loss. Um, I think that grief is um, obviously uh, related to death, and uh, often is, and, and death is a fundamental reality that our culture is um, fundamentally aligned against (laughs) kind of acknowledging in any real way. So I'm fascinated by the way that loss and grief are portals to other ways of thinking about identity, other ways of thinking about the self. Um, So my um, visual artwork for several years has um, focused on um, depicting these sort of abstracted maps of glaciers um, that are disappearing um, or shifting into water, to be more precise, um, and thinking about what, you know, what these what these maps hold in terms of um, both like visual um, sustenance and also presenting an image of loss that can be potentially welcomed in um, and experienced. Um, My poetry has also circled around this idea of um, kind of kind of more maybe in 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 line directly with um, the topic for today. I've been writing a lot about the self and what this question of what what are the edges of the self where are the edges of the self which is really a question about consciousness and it's really a question about how um, we can redefine what it means to be human and how necessary that is that's amazing thank you let's just keep stirring the question pot for a while (laughs) flavia do you have anything to share in terms of what questions you're currently holding or what you're curious about right now? In my practice, I think a lot about hybridity um, as well as myth and animality um, as sort of reflections of anthropocentric structures of power and 
bodily relations between humans. And um, in particular, currently I'm thinking through and continuing to work on an ongoing project around production, um, specifically focusing on the object of um, a sort of classical vessel and then the reproduction of that object through like at scale through mold making, for example, but also rethinking its materiality and making new objects that are sort of intended to be along that lineage of production of sameness, uh, which is, you know, a value that I'm interested in sort of deconstructing and examining in my practice um, out of, you know, other materials like salt that don't hold water and sort of playing with ideas of leakage and breakage and failure within sort of re reproductive systems. Um, again, sort of focusing in the studio on object reproduction, but kind of thinking about it through a lens of like larger questions around those same ideas. Um, for me, um, three months ago, I was in Alaska to work on uh, glacier and climate change. Um, I turned the very intangible climate change data, like glacier melting data into more um, empathetic and uh, easy to embody forms like uh, performance dance music. And I'm now in Hawaii working on octopus and squid related projects that kind of question Anthropocene as well, uh, questioning this, oh, like in Silicon Valley, we always talk about human-centered design. Um, so uh, like everything's human-centered and I'm creating this like Cthulhu-scene, which is not Anthropocene again. And my artwork on climate change is, is to create this embodiment. And on the other side, my design work around climate change and how we can encourage uh, each um, con consumer, each customer to form their behavior to be more climate friendly. Thank you so much, Jabao. Um, just because I'm very excited about squid and octopi, I'm wondering if we can start to transition maybe into how we each incorporate other species or other kin, um, be they rocks or trees or other forms of nature into our practices and what those relationships are like. So I wonder, Jabao, if you want to speak a little bit about maybe what you're learning from collaborating with squid. Yeah, squid are amazing creatures. Uh, so I'm working together with the Marine Biology Lab in University of Hawaii. They look into uh, the this bacteria called Vibrofisheri, the symbiosis between the bacteria and the bobtail squid. For, from the beginning of their life, um, they can attract this bacteria and they will live in their light organ and uh, to help them to camouflage, um, which is called counter-illuminance. They, during the, the night, they will mimic moonlight. So when they swim around, they don't cast shadow on the ground so that the predators will just think they are the, uh, the moon moonlight, um, not another squid that's swimming on top of them. It's amazing that I like I I work with the the squid. I, I raise them and be in close touch with them every day. Um, I, I look into these bacteria, how they illuminate and grow the bacteria. Um, I also had an octopus for a while, which led me to this casulusin I'm trying to work on. Um, well, it's gonna be a long story. Do you really want to hear about it? <laughs> Yeah, I think that's what we're here for. <laughs> and it'll, I definitely do. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so, you know, about this Anthropocene, the scientists call um, the, uh, realize the, our human behavior on the, the impact on the, on the earth, on the climate, and then we call it Anthropocene. On one side, it's a realization, but on the other side, we once again placed mankind and the, at the very center of the world. So this following project is based on a setting that global warming caused sea level to rise and all continents were submerged underwater. And as a highly intelligent species in the ocean, the octopus have 
unlock the gene which causes them to self-destruct after giving birth, um, which is an optic gland that uh, exists in between their mantle, in between the two eyes in the mantle, um, that release self-destructing hormone. So in the lab, they um, get rid of this and find that they can continue reproduction and live for a longer life, uh, not just uh, pass away after giving birth. And now they can pass on the wisdom from ancestors from generation to generation. And humans like to use octopuses as a metaphor for uh, centralized government or long-armed world police, as you can see a lot of octopus map. And so they live up to our expectations. Um, I call them the contemporary octopus become the next dominating species after humans. And the Anthropocene ends and the Earth enters Cthulhuocene. And the octopus in the Cthulhuocene is called contemporary octopus. And so that's like the, the, the world building. And then I'm creating um, artifacts, stories, um, graphic novels around this world. And also the thinking of um, if humans will ine inevitably become extinct due, due to environmental breakdown, um, how can we leave a legacy that means something? Like um, Paula Antonelli, uh, the curator of MoMA, said that the best chance at survival is to design a really great extinction for ourselves so that our legacy will survive and the next dominant species will remember us a with a little bit of tenderness and empathy. And so the, if the existence of art and design is to make our extinction a little more elegant and to let the next dominating species remember us better, then what art can we create to let octopus and other cephalopods remember us better when we extinct? And following, like we are trying to embody octopus as a first gesture, um, instead of building walls, we try to connect with them first. And um, I have some two dancers in Hawaii. We are trying to, like, we are looking at all the um, movement of octopus and uh, dance, like two persons. So we have eight limbs, like eight tentacles, and um, mimic their movement, mimic their dance. We will have training uh, to, to train everybody to um, be more connected with octopus, like through Zoom training. It's more like a couple yoga. So kind of like we, we train to be prepared for a war or, or um, an earthquake. Um, so uh, we train to be prepared for this not human-centered world anymore, but centered by some other species. And there's a whole fiction I'm writing and poem about how this contemporary octopus, when, when they do archaeology and look back at how, what human created around octopus, like sex toys, painting of octopus, like the Hokusai um, painting of the octopus have play with the fisherman wife, um, or the octopus map, and how, how do they think of us? Um, how, how do they uncover, do they become their new mythology? Um, do they think of the way like what, what humans think, like humans is the, the, uh, the beginning of the life and the end of the, the life, uh, the, the end of the earth? Um, so, in what kind of world will, will they have? What does border, country, self even mean for them? Because they have um, nine brains, each of their tentacles is a brain. And when, when we kind of embody in the octopus, we are also trying to try to imagine we have decentralized brain. So it's a, it's a weave between this, this science fact and almost like science fiction or mythology we are creating here in this world. I love thinking about how other species will remember us. I really appreciate that. I'm gonna hold that as a question. Um, mm -hmm. Flavia or Daniela, are there any kin you want to speak about that are present in your collaborations or, or ways that you're also in hybridity with fact and fiction, myth and story? Yeah, absolutely. And um, also, yeah, Val's um, idea of sort of moving towards our inevitable extinction with elegance is so fabulous <laughs> and amazing. I'm definitely going to be holding that as well. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And I, um, I think 
in my own practice, I've often gravitated towards like the large domesticated prey animal has been um, extremely fascinating for me to look at, especially when thinking through questions of um, queer identity and um, the identity of women identifying folks and just the parallels historically too with sort of, you know, that horse that's in that painting <laughs> with um, so-and-so conqueror, there are many, um, or that statue and and so on and so forth, and how how there are figures throughout history, both human and non-human, that are accessories, disposable accessories and sort of symbols of power and conquest. I might maybe recoup some of that kinship through my practice. Often I'm using horsehair um, and thinking through materials like iodine that are often used to sanitize wounds and I myself use them on cuts on animals as a child and now sort of using that as um, a medium to paint and create a cartography of my own pain and my own body and then embroidering that with horsehair to make sort of that stained area a site of growth and then does that make that image essentially a flattened sort of centaur version of myself incorporating the animal body into the sort of um vestige of my own body um and kind of continually turning those questions and those materials and that kind of um, closeness with non-humans around in my practice um, has has been really fruitful i suppose if that's the right word um, for the past few years and also i think to that same point um, i think kinship with the non-human is really helpful in thinking about um, the trajectory of the lifespan and death, as has been touched on by multiple people in the conversation already, um, and how we sort of mourn ourselves or connect ourselves w with our own body or with other bodies is really interesting. I'm so inspired and fascinated by what everyone just said. Um, I... I just, yeah, I want to just sort of reiterate what you all just said, but I will, I'll talk a little bit, but there, there are definitely echoes. Um, my primary uh, collaborations with other forms of life um, engage collaborating with water um, and with pigment. And I think of, um, I think a lot about the the ways that um, water's energy shifts depending on where what the water body is that I'm drawing from. Um, so a lot of my visual work takes the form of watercolor paintings. So water is a a really primary um, ingredient, um, and pigment is the other primary ingredient. And pigments are essentially a form of deep time, in my understanding of them. They are they're alive. Um, they shift in unpredictable ways when when you're um, painting with natural pigments versus synthetic pigments. They they have a liveliness to them. They have a um, they have agency essentially. And so when I'm painting with you know for example like river water and ochre. Um, I'll expect a completely different kind of conversation than if I'm painting with water from a city tap and like thalo blue, which is a synthetic pigment. Um, city tap water and thalo blue will do exactly the same thing every single time you use them. Um, ochre and river water won't ever do the same thing. So it's, um, it's a dance um, between myself and the water body and the pigment. And pigments, I think, I think of them as deep time and as this sort of concatenation or symphony of, um, of multiple species that have essentially sedimented into, um, into a, a, what, what appears to often be a single form, a single, um, a single color. 
But the one of the fascinating things about natural pigments is that they're never one color. Um, and similarly, they're never one form. Like there's insect bodies wrapped up in them. There's um, you know plant bodies wrapped up in them. There's um, all of the human hands, all of the, the bones and um, uh, the, the weather. Um, so a lot, a lot of my practice for the last few years has just been breaking down like consciously laboriously, but also like playfully breaking down this idea that I am a single unitary entity, like that, that I am a unitary self working with and like other unitary entities. Um, I think of myself as sort of having nine brains, sort of, or at least nine brains, almost infinite brains to go back to um, the idea of the octopi in a decentralized brain. I, I, think, I think of my consciousness as being continually shifting, continually shifted, and, and, and shifted by a conversation with these other entities that are also non-unitary, not flattened, not stable, um, refuse to sit still, refuse to become a product or an object. And in terms of my writing practice, I'm, I think about language in a similar way, or I try to. Language is obviously more of an abstraction, and it can do, the, do what we want it to do very easily. It can sit still on a page or in a conversation and convey an idea. Um, but I'm really interested in poetic language and how poetry can supersede its own meaning, how it, how it can um, unflatten language to encompass things that language can't even necessarily encompass um, in, any, in any literal sense. Since you're talking about pigment, I, so we, are, um, we have some uh, overlapping interests about glacier and depicting how they disappear. It's fascinating to see your painting. Um, I wonder how you choose the color to depict them, because in one way it's it's like grave. They're disappearing from this um, very beautiful stunning blue into uh, this gray and bl black uh, barren land. Uh, but in your painting, it's some are quite bright, some are vibrant color. So how you decide to choose that color? Yeah, thank you. That's I love that question. Um, my my method for choosing the colors so far has been primarily to create an object of beauty in, or you know an image of beauty in the painting and that might sound kind of trite or <laughs> like I'm ev evading the question but I really think that beauty is a, a powerful tool um, and I my fundamental goal with um, with those paintings is to invite a confrontation with emotions and ideas that our culture is hellbent against um, allowing us to experience deeply. Um, so it's it's intuitive decisions mostly that um, work towards some sort of like, um, some sort of like balance between chaos and harmony, I guess. Um, I don't want them to just be merely pretty. I want them to to have some some edginess and and um, dissonance to them. Um, but the colors aren't like coded to the places most of the time. Some of the paintings, there is some like sort of direct symbolism, like cadmium is. Um, a super intense red pigment. It's also very toxic and it's being exposed in the soils um, in the Andes as those glaciers melt. So like when I was working with images of those melting glaciers, those paintings have a ton of cadmium in them. So sometimes there is um, a correlation, um, but oftentimes it's a more um, intuitive translation. Fascinating, thank you. I'm curious um, with 
you all collaborating with, again, other species and other living forms, how you conceive or participate in processes of consent or reciprocity across species, and especially as Daniela was acknowledging the entanglements of our own bodies in bacteria and millions of other kinds of consciousness. Um, yeah, how do you go about thinking of consent or enacting reciprocity as you're working with other bodies and, and being multiple bodies? I, I can jump in. I don't want to dominate, but I'll, I'll just briefly say that um, I think of um, establishing consent or reciprocity in my work as an act of listening, um, like deep listening. Um, I wish that I had um, more specific rituals that I have inherited to rely on um, in order to maybe have more faith in a sense of reciprocity or consent, um, because sometimes it feels like I'm just making it up as I go, frankly. Um, and I am, which is probably why it feels like that. Um, but I, I think of um, the, the deep listening, and this word I think is divisive and it means different things for different people, but I've started to talk to myself about my own work as an act of prayer. And I grew up in a very religious background, which I've rejected, but the idea of prayer for me is an act of reciprocity. Um, it is, it is a, um, it's not about praying for a specific outcome. It's about a, a listening into um, other forms of consciousness, other forms of being, and then responding with generosity and empathy. Yeah, that's really in interesting and also an interesting question. I think um, there's something maybe that I am thinking about as a form of reciprocity is, is sort of both perhaps tenderness and agitation through my work as holding maybe a space to rethink how we move through space. And I don't think that that's necessarily the same as consent, but is perhaps the closest in what I'm doing um, that I can get to answering that question. I, I suppose it's sort of using using ideas around other forms of being and becoming to reflect on different human ways of becoming and moving, moving through the world as um, potentially a reciprocal relationship with what I'm sort of pulling from to make my work. I guess for me, um, when I work with these amazing creatures, octopus um, or squid, um, I try to spend a lot of time together with them in a way that don't harm their life. And like day by day, almost like living with them together. And in the work, it's like being as mutual subject, not a single-minded mirror of myself onto the subject. Or like, for example, when we dance, uh, we dance ourselves, but we also dance in front of the octopus. We invite, we don't know how octopus think of us, uh, but we involve them to be, to participate in the work as well. Um, like make it as an invitation. And for like, for example, for glacial work, I, I really like the work of Kate Hartman um, about glacier like answering this question uh, she she tried to talk to the glacier and she she found um can't just use a speaker to talk to glacier or or like listen to glacier it's really cool to listen to so she created this uh hug suit that can insulate the heat coming from her to melt the glacier but at the same time they can hug each other i think that's that's very moving and when i work on climate change related things, a question I always ask myself is the need to develop these works. Uh, is, is it the positive climate impact of this work worth the negative climate impact of the materials and the process of making it or shipping it or um, people coming here to look at it? I love hearing about the hug suit. <laughs> and it makes me think about 
adapting hybrid forms for the sake of connection, like hybrid forms of communicating in order to connect. And so I'm wondering if anyone has anything to say about sort of the ways that hybridizing, whether it's hybridizing knowledge, hybridizing practices, I'm even thinking about the way we connect with people now so much more over the internet and these forms of mediation that we participate in. I don't know. I guess the question for me right now is like, is it worth it? <laughs> Are these worth it for for you as individuals in your practices? And repeating Jabao's question about just are the ends determined by the means like are yeah is it worth it are we doing more harm than good in trying to connect through these hybridized forms tyler would it be okay to ask a little bit more your thoughts around um hybridity in this sense if we're i guess yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah in this sense i'm thinking about like hybridizing being when two things come together to make a third thing. And I suppose in the example of even the ways that I connect with people over Zoom, for example, like um, it feels like a hybridizing process because of the way that the technology is mediating my relationship and the ways that I'm, I'm meeting others through that mediation which then produces like a third different way of being. Um, So that's sort of how I'm thinking about it. I think like the ways we interact with technology, creating different kinds of consciousness or different kinds of connection, that's kind of the frame. Is that clarifying at all? Yeah, absolutely. I I just wanted to make sure I kind of understood um, the question, but I think yeah, hybridity is, is so interesting and can take on so many forms and, and can be viewed from many different angles. And um, I think it's really fascinating through material choices even too. If, you know, I'm often thinking um, in an installation or a work, you know, if I have a video of an orifice, some sound that's from some creature and something with hair, in some way am I reconstituting a body? And what does that mean? And obviously, in many senses, the obvious answer is no, of course not. But I think a lot about sort of intentionally continuing to go through that process of sort of creating a hybrid space organism, something that is maybe trying to form back into something that it once was, that it never was, that it never will be, but sort of it's, I think hybridity in that sense is very interesting because it can kind of point to the thing that it's attempting to be. For example, um, the Zoom call that you mentioned, you know, it's sort of, it's sort of pointing to and attempting to the base of human interaction and connection, but it's mediated through all these other processes that it's not really that anymore. Um, it's not that it doesn't exist. It's it's a whole new thing, but it's not quite the thing that it's pretending to be. And I think that there's something so strange, but wonderful and horrible and all the things about about that kind of mediated experience when you start to really examine it um, or when it's done intentionally or, or, you know, I even think about drag a lot and how that's really linked to hybridity um, and sort of re reconstituting gender and then breaking it back down and the performativity of it and sort of how it also then by doing that also kind of reframes and breaks down desire and then also makes it funny but then in so doing also makes it extremely poignant and serious so I think that a lot of times the exposure of the hybrid nature of a process or of a thing um, is really rich territory for for us for me at least (laughs) yeah and different ways that that can connect back to legacy right and sort of how 
how engaging in processes of hybridity are also in conversation with futurity and and how yeah i'm even thinking about daniela's pigments like again how time travels across materials and bodies and combinations that are seemingly endless daniela or jabal do you have anything else to add sort of on this subject of hybridity yeah i think um, the gesture of trying to connect with other species in a way also help us to look back at ourselves and understand and com communicate and connect with our own species more. I, I did a TED talk on like how technology mediates the way we perceive reality, how this echo chamber, this bubble, this like hate speech, or how this social media influence the way we see ourselves or each other just within our own species. But if you jump out, if you put geological time on a clock, you, like the, the start of Earth, how the rocks form, how different um, animal species come out, and then humans only one second on the clock, the, the last like f uh, 59, and then that's human. And if you jump out and look at this way, you suddenly feel all this echo chamber, this bubble just burst. And I personally experienced it. Like I, I work in Silicon Valley. I'm part of that technology part. And then this pandemic caused me to be in Alaska, be in Hawaii, to be in touch with nature and work with nature so much. And um, personally, I feel that transition and the, the, the way of thinking and the birth of the bubble. I think, I think one thing I would add to this idea, and I'd I just have been relishing what everyone said so far. Um, as I try to think of, you know, um, you said that a hybrid is sort of two things that come together to create a third thing. Um, and I think of a hybrid space um, like, um, like this space or like a Zoom call um, as like what, wh how could it be a, a third place, which is like a sociological term for a place that's neither public nor private, but communal, like a space that in which we are not um, positioned as consumers, we're not positioned as, um, as inhabiting any particular social role, we just get to be people. Um, and the thing for me that I both struggle with and try to um, keep in mind in these, um, I mean, I, I think they're fundamentally really awkward spaces, um, technological spaces, these modes of communication, partly because they're so surveilled and because we're so subject to the algorithms that, that create them and, and maintain that surveillance. Um, so the question that I try to keep in mind in them as a form of, you know, potentially making them third places is like, how can the technology be misused? Like how can the algorithm be turned in on itself, um, reticulated? Like what are the ways in which this, you know, we, we can take this product we've been given and um, undo it <laughs> essentially. Yeah, that's amazing. Thanks for saying that, Daniela. I'm wondering if we can shift a little bit into talking about mutations, which we've sort of already touched on a little bit, talking about squid unlocking genes for their reproduction. And I'm curious that I'm curious about how as artists um, we can think about epigenetics as being as conditions that affect gene expression. And in thinking about legacy and how genes are passed on over time. I guess I'm wondering about how as artists, we create conditions that will awaken what we want to pass on over time or what we want our legacy to be as a species. That's such an interesting um, question to think through. I don't know if I can claim to think my work has epigenetic potential, I guess. <laughs> but it is interesting to think almost, I, I suppose I might actually think about it a, a bit in reverse, um, in the sense that, like many people, I worry about the epigenetic effect 
I don't know if that's the medically correct way of framing um, epigenetics here, but, you know, thinking about climate change, the pandemic, and so on and so forth, and all of the sort of potential stress that is put on us in so many different aspects of our lives, um, and sort of the effects of that moving forward, and kind of going back to that legacy that we've been talking about throughout. And I suppose the most I can hope for is to give just one moment of um, pause, at the very least to myself through making the work, um, to maybe not turn on something, but give space to not turn on (laughs) um, the stressors so profoundly that they get passed on if that makes sense i'm I'm also thinking through this in real time so i may not feel that way when i continue to think through it a fun fact about squid and octopus they can edit and direct their own brain genes uh throughout their their life their time uh, which human own, like for example scientists discovered that more than 60% of their RNA transcripts in the squid brain are recorded by editing. But humans throughout their life is only like 1%. Um, I think that that's amazing. We are still discovering why they're doing that, how they're doing that. That's so fascinating and thinking about like the implications of that for yeah. almost editing your own personal history. That's super fascinating. <laughs> hmm it's kind of mysterious to me why they can edit their own gene, but they don't edit out the gene that caused them to, to die after giving birth. Or mm. do they do it unconsciously? Yeah. Oh, well, obviously, I don't, I don't know anything about this, but it is really interesting. <laughs> um, that, it's, that's so fascinating. I was talking about that with a friend the other night, actually, um, that they are in, in in so many ways just so much more highly evolved as creatures than we are. But to go back to uh, the question, I agree with what you said, Flavia. Like, I don't think of my work as um, necessarily having that power, but I do think that that art in general has that power in a society, um, in individuals. Um, I think that, that art has, you know, a capacity to shift what we notice fundamentally and not just what we notice, but how we notice. Um, and my, my hope is that, you know, if there, if there's a a gene that can be awakened by the art world, um, speaking very, very broadly with that term, um, really having, I I don't think it has anything to do with the market. I mean, like people who are creating things. If there's one thing that I hope can be awakened, one gene that can be turned on, it's like a sense of vulnerability and openness and awareness that goes beyond the extremely narrow way that we're taught to perceive by consumerism. I agree with it so much. I guess to add on, I think cultural selection lasts so much more than natural selection than, than like giving birth to baby to pass gene in that way. But culture, how art influenced how people think lasts so much longer than that. Yeah, that's so true. And I think to both of your points, the and, and again, that point of legacy, especially now, I think it's very under threat um, just even the practice of the, I think the way um, art holds space for the practice of thinking and observing and um, questioning is key and and sort of being to sort of stretch the squid <laughs> um, analogy is, is almost being edited out in a negative way culturally. Um, and so I think you're both correct and just holding the space and continuing certain practices of thinking and thinking through questions um, has a lot of long lasting potential. Yeah, we're already sort of touching on it, but to bring back Jabao's 
moving towards extinction with elegance, I'm wondering how you all think art can help us do that. And yeah, to quote about design a really great extinction, not that that's our, <laughs> our end goal, but it's a curious question um, to me and how you think art can participate in that process in a way that leaves a generative and hopefully remedial legacy. I don't think that um, I have a definitive answer to that because it's a beautifully huge question. <laughs> um, but I will say that I think one of the things um, that art can contribute to that just, uh, I, I can't think of a, yeah, it's a, such a resonant goal, designing a more elegant extinction for ourselves, um, is for me, it's, it's to rethink the implications of what that word ourselves mean. Like, um, I think, I think we're, we're, we're still very attached to, um, and culturally to a, a modernist sense of the self as, um, really, um, individualized, really constrained, um, and really lacking in any sort of, um, meaningful, interdependency, porosity, um, what Bio Komalafe calls the monstrous, which I think is a really um, compelling sort of evocation of, of the, the, the different ways that the self has been constructed in, in different cultures across different times and in different places. Um, and we have this really toxic view of what it means to be human that's guiding our, our, you know, our path, our very rapid path towards self-extinction. Um, and if there's a way that we can shift that sense of, of who we are, I think it can shift the way um, we engineer or orchestrate or um, write ourselves into obsolescence. That word monstrosity brings up a lot for me and is something that I think about a lot as well. And that a lot of um, what can be so valuable about art practice is perhaps embracing that monstrosity that we deny in, of ourselves right now, um, or that we see as monstrous that isn't perhaps, um, and sort of doing the deep work of untangling and questioning and really examining the monstrosity that we tolerate, I think. <laughs> I guess also um, realize that we will extinct and we prepare for it. And like in the speculative design world, um, try to picture that in a tangible way and then uh, we can work um, towards it or um, try to be more, uh, have more like tenderness, tenderness and empathy of, of, many other species of the earth. Oh, wow. <laughs> I feel like we're just beginning, <laughs> but we're actually approaching sort of close to the end of our time. So I wonder just one last question for, for now anyway, um, just what legacy you hope to leave or what you hope other species will remember about us. I'll attempt. I, these are all such, um, as Daniela said, um, beautifully big questions and topics. But I would hope that post-human <laughs> um, extinction, we are seen for our curiosity and our capacity for creation and innovation and forgiven for our lack of control of that same thing. I think that's so beautifully said, Flavia. Um, I would add that, um, you know, there's one conception of our species, James Hillman, I think, called us homo, homo aestheticus. Um, and we, I think that we are certainly not the only species to appreciate beauty, but it is something that 
I think defines our species more than we tend to uh, broadly acknowledge. And I think that that draw towards beauty is something I hope that we are remembered in in that light. Um, I think also there's there's a way in which dreaming um, the the desire or the 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 willingness to kind of um, dream into what the world um, could be is a uniquely perhaps a uniquely human capacity. I find myself having a really hard time defining anything as uniquely hum human increasingly in my life. But it seems like um, that desire to change things, that um, that question asking tendency has um, definitely a Jekyll and Hyde quality, but there's a there's a there's a beauty to it. There's a there's a generosity and a delight to it that I hope we might be remembered by. I think Daniela and Flavia, you have wonderful answers. Um, I will just add on to it. Our creation, our imagination, and our sentiment we are sentimental beings, our love to each other and to other species and to many other things, and the, the ability of cry over a falling flower or disappearing glacier. Um, these are all the, um, the sentiment or the, the vulnerability of, of us. And also we are along the way, we are figuring out a lot of things. We have discussion, we have question, we question ourselves all along this process. Thank you all so much. I feel just so filled up <laughs> with so many new ideas and and more questions. And I just really appreciate all of you being here and sharing your practices and and being in the big questions and and not being afraid to be in those uh, with me during this discussion. So I really appreciate it and hope for more dialogue to come to come out of this. It's all very exciting. For more information about the Anchorage Museum, visit anchoragemuseum.org. This podcast was produced by me, Cody Liska, for the Anchorage Museum. This mini-series was curated and written by Erratics, a project by Nina Elder, Hannah Perrine Mode, and Tyler Ray. You can visit their work at erraticsproject.com. Music was produced by Keezy Baby. <laughs>